0: We were present at the recording of a podcast, but we don't think we were actually involved in it. (laughs) However, a podcast was made. (laughs) Welcome back to Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast that's the equivalent of that bit in Inception, where the bus is falling off the bridge in slow motion and the horns are blaring, Mm -hmm. except the bus has got 350 million quid for the NHS written on the side of it, and we're all (laughs) inside it. My name is Andrew Harrison and I've got two of our regulars here with us. Naomi Smith is the Chief Operating Officer of Best for Britain, here in a personal capacity of course, because her personal views are 100% opposed to Best for Britain's <laughs> diametrically. So, hello Naomi, how are you?
1: Oh, you know, struggling along.
0: Struggling along. You've had a massive week with Best for Britain's bombshell research about leave constituencies flipping to remain and we're going to talk about that later in the show. But how was that for you personally? Has it been a, a mental week?
1: Um, Well, yeah, there have been some very, very long hours, but I think uh, my colleagues at Besser Britain, uh, Hope Not Hate, and the incredible team at Focal Data did the vast majority of the heavy lifting, so I wouldn't want to claim to have... uh Beaten, beaten the hours they were doing.
0: In semi-related news, did you enjoy the lady this week who said her holiday in Spain was ruined because there were too many Spanish people in <laughs> Benidorm? Did you enjoy this story?
1: <laughs> OK, so valid complaints um, about tour operators being crappy aside, she does sound kind of like the guest that would probably complain about being served by Manuel at a talkie hotel.
0: I felt a bit sorry for her because she she had problems with mobility. yeah, And I think it's one of those things where... You know, someone who has had, had no experience with media at all, sort of off the cuff says, I know it was, was confusing, it's full of Spanish people, and that becomes the headline. Yeah. So she becomes Indeed. Lady Goes to Spain, doesn't realize Indeed. it's got Spanish people. Like, I felt a little bit sorry for her.
1: But of course, where she went wrong was that she didn't book with Everymatic to, go to Greece. <laughs> oh, wow. She should yes. have been friend, friend of the podcast. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> have,
0: that's Everymatic.com, <laughs> our friends Also back on the show is Ian Dunt, the editor of politics.co.uk. You can laughing there. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello. We're busy week yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually surprisingly, yeah. yeah. Even though there's nobody in Parliament? There's no, yeah, there's
2: no one in Parliament, there's no real sort of news, which is why we all had to talk about Boris Johnson for a week, and now we're all talking about, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's thing for a week, because there's no other news to take it up, but there's a bunch of other sort of bits and bobs that I've been sort
0: of getting on with, so not not as, as relaxing as it might seem from the outside. Is it quite liberating not having to do the kind of pointless back and forth thing, the, the kind of common Punch and Judy show, you can actually get into the real stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's
2: fucking great. Uh, The thing is, I don't really do all that much because I'm not very newsy, you know, so Mm. I'm not like my colleagues who are all in the lobby who are just, like, picking up the news, picking up the news. I'm the stuff that we do on the website is usually a bit more long form and a bit more sort of taking a couple of steps back. So the the rhythm of that doesn't affect my day-to-day stuff too much, but it's
0: still just really nice just not to have to look at their faces. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there was at least one bit of Brexit news which came out of the sausage machine this week, that uh, firms are already facing a skills shortage in IT, mm. transport, construction, health and hospitality. Mm. Uh, Brexit has seized on this as good news because it means wages are going to go up in this sector. Is it good news? Is it good news? I mean... No, no. Um, So
2: they're always going to do this. They're going to go for any evidence that there is a rise in wages. And it would be... I mean, we've seen very, very drastic reductions in the number of of EU migrants coming over to the UK. I think we've gone from 148,000 to the year after we went down to Mm 7,000. Health warning on that, but I'm pretty sure those figures are correct. And they're always going to approach this with a supply and demand mentality, just pure supply and demand, nothing else to it. Okay, so there's fewer people coming over, wages are going to go up. And in some sectors... It would be astonishing if that didn't take case. But that is an extremely rudimentary, simplistic view of how these things operate. One of the things that immigrants do is they raise productivity quite sharply. In many of the sectors that they work in, we're not entirely sure why it could be to do with bring in new customers, bring in a Slovakian guy who can suddenly start at the Slovakian market. We also know, for instance, if you have someone coming in working for quite low wages in childcare, then that actually tends to raise productivity and sometimes earnings for people who they're taking care of the children of. So they're very, very complex economic units, immigrants. And if you just see a reduction and think, right, that's it, we're going to see a rise in wages that will either be cancelled out by inflation or may not happen at all. The ONS figures that came out yesterday would suggest that this is not being seen in terms of people's actual wages when they take them home or it could just be a little bit more complex than that. So who would have thought, turns out, it might be a little bit more complicated.
0: I'll to everything he says. It's, it's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid to, yeah, sorry about Well,
1: it's it because in construction, wages are high, uh, relatively anyway, and they still have um, 30% vacancies at any one time across the sector, particularly in London. So that is a case where you've got an industry that, you know, if you are on site as a senior uh, site manager, project manager, you'll, you'll be earning... It's the kind of salary that would rival city salaries, financial services salaries. Oh. And that's how the construction sector has often pitched itself into schools and colleges. It, it goes in and says, you know, if you end up as a senior surveyor on one of our mega million pound site, billion pound sites, you could be mm. earning 100,000, 150,000 plus bonus, etc., etc., taking your remuneration well over 200,000. And yet Brits still don't really apply to take up uh, roles in that sector. So, you know, all of this is ignoring other evidence and other facts out there um, that, that it is not that we have um, low wages that are putting uh, Brits off from doing these jobs. It's that they don't want to do them or they don't have the skills currently to do them. That, yeah.
2: that shortages thing is, is really fascinating, by the way. When we were talking about the food thing last week, you look at the situation of EU vets working in the UK. They, I mean, those are good salaries that you get, basically, when you go into an abattoir and check for animal standards. But... British people don't want to do it. And even if you want to bring them in, you've got to spend years getting them trained up to the point where they
0: could do it. Certainly not enough time for Brexit. Shut up, Ian. I've got to introduce the guest.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this week's special
0: guest. It's a bit of a first for Romaniacs. We've been very short on conservative Remainers as guests for the show, and we need to put that right. Garvin Walsh is a former national and international security policy advisor to the Conservative Party. He was also an advisor to the Conservative in campaign. He's a regular contributor to Conservative Home, and he's the CEO of TRD Policy, formerly known as Brexit Analytics. Hello, Garvin. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank th- thanks for coming in. Why did you change the name from Brexit Analytics? Is it because Brexit is such a horrible word that we're sick of?
3: Well, it's partly because I'm I'm in I'm headquartered in Brussels, and in Brussels, if you start any conversation <laughs> with Brexit, uh, people <laughs> ship you out of the room very 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 fast. Oh God! Oh God! He said Brexit. <laughs> then there were some other people who said, "Look, we'd love to work with you, but." Um, you know, don't you sound a bit like Cambridge Analytica? <laughs> well, this is it, yes. I did see
0: it. I, I saw it described somewhere as Brexit Analytica. Analytica what it, really, well, really, yeah.
3: it was, but Oxford Analytica sued us because we were called Analytica. <laughs> and, and then Cambridge Analytica hit us because of their branding problems the other end. So basically, stay away from analytics. Don't call Analytica. anything Analytica. People don't
0: understand the difference. Absolutely. <laughs> stay, stay off the Analytica. We're in the dog days right now. It's the lull in the endless battle. What, what's your sense as a Conservative Remainer? What's your sense of kind of where Brexit is heading? Do you subscribe to the kind of Liam Fox Jeremy on diagnosis of, you know, 60, 40 hard Brexit by accident?
3: I would say that the central scenario is the central scenario is no no deal Brexit mm-hmm. and because not enough things can come in in the right way to avoid it. And it's the default situation if nothing. Nothing gets agreed. Does that mean that there will be complete disaster forever? Not necessarily, because people in Brussels are preparing emergency deals on things like aviation and certain aspects of customs so the basic infrastructure can come up. But I would also say they would like to keep the option open of a complete catastrophic break, which they hope will concentrate (laughs) the minds over here in Britain.
0: It's concentrating our minds. It doesn't seem to be concentrated in anybody else's mind. We're very
3: concentrated here. I mean, where, where, I mean, where, where are they kind of... They're, they're thinking like one of these old uh, Israeli generals saying, the only thing the Palestinians understand is force." <laughs> <laughs> That's going to go over so well on Twitter, Garvin, really well. It, it could be, because they... They imagine that the consequence of no deal for Britain are so absolutely terrible that everything will be uh, done to avoid that happening. The consequence, the hard border in Mm. Ireland, the consequence of interruption in trade, interruption in flights, the value of the pound. And they think this will make people think, well, we can't possibly um, do this. We're going to have to avoid it. We're going to have to reach compromises. We're going to have to make concessions. What they don't get is that because Britain's completely divided, essentially in two, and we're going to talk about exactly which way the wind is blowing this week, I know when we Mm. come onto the polls, because it's divided essentially in two, Remainers will say, yes, quite right. It's the stu- stupid um, Brexit government that's causing all this. Absolutely outrageous. They should make concessions straight away because we c- we shouldn't be mad. Then you'll have Leavers saying, no, we're a proud country. We can't possibly accept um, <laughs> this bullying from the EU if they're going to give us no deal. Well, we're going to make no deal work because after all, we're Britain. And then they'll probably go on to one and a series of... Um, World War Two analogies. <laughs> <laughs> in this way, they're quite like the Palestinians who are divided between Hamas and Fatah. Um, Fatah who are, you know, okay, we've got a peace deal, we've got to kind of work it. Hamas who want chaos in order to bring about um, what they see as, you know, the, wor- the, the worse the better, oh. as... Um, good Marxists would have it
2: that was some great metaphor
3: it
1: bookings was. that you deployed <laughs> right there That was fantastic
0: it really was garden's going to be with us throughout the show as we discuss these matters including that best Britain research and a special treat for Ian five things you need to know about the WTO hey. <laughs> yes we're taking the opportunity of this pause in hostilities <laughs> to explain a few key things about the WTO and at the end of the show we've got a few emails from listeners in an exciting new semi-regular feature we're calling Your Emails it took me a long time to think of that well first here's Naomi with a few important reminders
1: We've just been able to release a few very nice seats for the next Romaniacs Live in London on Wednesday, 12th of September, right in the middle of the theatre with a splendid view of Ian getting irate about country of origin checks and the rest of us trying to calm him down. Patreon backers, of course, got first dibs and a discount. And these last few prime seats are going fast. So if you want to see Ian, Dorian, Alex and me live on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre at the heart of the Metropolitan Bubble, now is the time to book. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com and search Romaniacs. We'll see you there. And if you fancy a change from endless Brexit in these troubled times, God knows we do sometimes, we can recommend our companion podcast, Big Mouth, to soothe your mind. Big Mouth covers everything that's interesting in pop culture, from music to TV to movies, and you'll hear a lot of Romaniacs people popping up from time to time. This week, presenter Andrew has Jude Rogers from The Guardian as his guest and the panel will be talking about the appallingly corny giant shark blockbuster, The Meg, a classic of electronic music by Boards of Canada and why Up is the REM album that everyone should like even though nobody does. You can find Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. New episodes every Saturday morning.
2: There are a lot of unsound things in that statement, especially the part about the REM album. But also is that Leicester Squares is the heart of the metropolitan... Leicester Squares are shit-up. Surely the heart of the room you know, would be you know, somewhere in North London. I didn't write Ian, it.
0: What, <laughs> dude, we're trying to sell tickets here. Have a bit. I mean,
2: Leicester Square Theatre is very nice. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Naomi. OK, let's have a proper look at that Best for Britain survey from the weekend, which found out that over 100 Westminster constituencies have flipped from leave to remain since the referendum – more seats in Britain now contain a majority of voters who want to stay in the EU and the trend is clearest in the supposed Brexit heartlands of the North and Wales researchers at Focal Data modelled two YouGov Mm -hmm. polls from before and after Theresa May released her Chequers proposals in July they found that the constituency split had moved from 403 leave versus 229 remain at the referendum Mm -hmm. over to 341 remain and 288 leave round about now or round about the time the survey was taken rather Naomi this is your research so I'm going to come to you last
1: okie dokie we're going to be
0: critical (laughs) first Ian the big question (laughs) yeah we are uh, Ian, a big question. Does this remove Jeremy Corbyn's electoral fig leaf for supporting Brexit? And the idea that Labour can't go against Brexit because the constituencies won't wear it. Does it.
2: No, I don't think it does do that. I mean, I think you can still cling to that. It wasn't particularly effective in the first place. And I don't think you know, this would be enough to shift him entirely. Although it, it, you can see that this kind of data puts a, a very precise needle on Corbyn leadership um, and, and, and has more effect there than it would probably in other parts of the political spectrum. What I think it really does do is counter that idea of just a fossilised mandate. You know, when every time you see an MP stand up to refer to their constituents as if it's just a block of opinion that lays unchanged over a series of years, regardless of the events that impact on it. And in that respect, it made the debate seem much more alive and fluid and that seems a precondition to me of changing things further on.
0: It is particularly tasty that Frank Field, Graham Stringer, Michael Gover and Boris Johnson's constituencies all now have remained majorities. Is that going to, as Darwin so was, is that going to so well, concentrate minds at all? So, I mean, it seems to me that this stuff is effective
2: in Parliament rather than in sort of the country as a whole. The country as a whole doesn't pay a lot of day-to-day attention to what's going on in Brexit. It does for broad brushstroke sort of events. But this was quite widely taken on, I think, by journalists and by politicians, at least that I could see online. It seemed to be one of the, probably the main news story of the weekend, had the kind of impact that I imagine the authors were hoping for.
0: Mm. Garvin, as a Conservative Remainer, what was your reaction well, to this? I
3: mean, what, what it shows is how sensitive the first-past-the-post system is to very small swings in opinion. <laughs> mm. You know, going from mm. 400 one way to 400 the other way because you've got a, a change in public opinion that's essentially within the margin of error is quite is, is, is quite something. Hey,
0: we don't make the rules. We just try to explain <laughs> them. <laughs>
3: and, but it doesn't quite shift the Labour Party position, which I imagine... Um, from where I've generally seen best for Britain to be and where it has influence to be the aim, aim of this thing. Because not only is Jeremy Corbyn himself a leaver, he was present but not involved in the uh, Remain <laughs> campaign, as many people have said already. Uh, but they've got a situation where in order to get a majority, they're looking at the Tory Labour seats with small majorities that they want to pick off. And they say, yeah. OK, who are the, where are these seats? They're kind of Midlands, North East. They're places that are still very heavy leave, not slightly leave, majorities, but heavily, heavily leave. So if if Best for Britain are going to persuade Labour to change um, their strategy here, they need to persuade them not just that on balance there's more of them, but the ones they need to win are actually ones that have flipped, and they need to show that it's the Dudleys of this world or the Brahms, Groves. They've really flipped
0: significantly. Mm. In the broader narrative of will of people starting to change, do you think that feeds into a broader thing, rather than that kind of granular micro level of you know tiny swings and that. is it is it feeding in at all in that way do you think
3: i don't know i mean i don't think we have if we look if we look at the polls and as an average we haven't seen significant evidence of major changes in public opinion mm-hmm. we may have seen a slight trend away from brexit and we've also seen a a lot of you know but a lot of wiggling around around a central line mm. and what really what it really come down to in in any campaign um is who, who actually has the proper turnout machine? Who is the efficient campaigning organization? Who has the ability to craft sharp and effective messages to um, get their voters out? Because this is this is a turnout game, as not any referendum. Everyone who's made up their mind has basically made up their mind two years ago. And well, that's the question though, we've, had, we've had. Where we've had where we've had people flipping. Uh, you've seen about 5% of people have flipped from
2: Leave to Remain 5% of people flip flipped from Remain to Leave. Uh, it's, not quite, it's not quite that simple, is it? I, mean, there, there's, you're, I think you're right to put the emphasis on the word slight. There's nothing there to give any sort of Remain a lot of confidence that this would all be fine. But certainly if, if, certainly the sort of tracking that we've seen from YouGov would suggest <coughs> that it flipped after the election and never really recovered. Little bits, but there's never been a sort of Leave. What I, what, I, what, what I think is going on there is that you're, you're seeing a change in turnout. So you're seeing
3: people mm-hmm. who didn't, um, weren't likely to vote in the first referendum yes, yes. and now saying, yeah. actually, oh, God, I better vote if there's another thing. If there's another vote, I'd mm-hmm. vote. And that change in turnout is affecting the
0: overall averages. Naomi, you are you you shaking your head when government was uh, saying that it hasn't really – uh, people's minds haven't really changed.
1: Uh, Yeah, Right. So um, where we're seeing the biggest changes is actually in the poorest areas. So that's what's really interesting uh, for me about this research. So um, according to Eurostat, uh, some of the poorest regions in northern Europe are places like um, West Wales and the valleys. And that's exactly where through this model, which isn't a poll. I'll get into that a bit later, um, if, if that's helpful, where we've seen really substantial change with Remain now leading leave by 55% to 44.9%. Um, and uh, like in places like Rhonda, uh, 60% of people who voted leave um, in 2016 uh, are now closer to 50, 50%. Uh, same in Merthyr Tydfil areas like that. So uh, where we're seeing other big shifts are in uh, obviously young voters, but also um, Hindus and Muslims and other BME communities um, really shifting towards Remain as well.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Garvin, do you get the sense that Conservative Remainers are looking for some kind of external escape route because they've been so easily intimidated, bought off and frankly conned, particularly in the Commons in recent months? The sense that they're looking for a new thing on the table, a new bit of information that enables them to go, aha, look, things have changed.
3: Yeah, and the thing, that, and the thing they're looking to use is EFTA. So the, the thinking among conservative remainers now is to say, well, um, it's all too difficult to Brexit as the Brexit is originally planned. What we need to think about is how we can anchor close to the EU for a bit of time so we can make a more sensible decision than we're ne- able to now. The vehicle they want to use for that is EFTA. And through EFTA, somehow, the phrase, the jargon here is to dock with the EEA. Whether that's possible or not is an open question, but it now, for the first time, provides them with an agenda to um, argue for. And they can now say, well, you know what, we actually have a plan too,
0: and this is our plan. I can see visions of... Star Trek and Imperial Star Destroyers dancing in Ian's head no, he talking about docking no fuck Pre- Star Trek it's boring prepare the can docking I ask break.
2: about the methodology because yep. it seemed it's cra- crazily sort of technical and difficult and unusual
0: isn't it mm. yeah what is multi-level regression and post-stratification <laughs> in a sentence please <laughs>
1: I mean, you know, we don't need facts and research anymore, <laughs> do we? In post in post Brexit Britain, so uh, no, who who needs this sort of stuff, especially when you can't even pronounce it? So from here on in, we'll call it MRP. Uh, so no one has to say multi level regression and post stratification analysis ever again. Okay. Um, so a reason we do this is because um, getting a representative sample in six hundred plus constituencies is extortionately expensive. So it's around four thousand pounds per constituency. To poll a representative sample there, and ideally you'll be polling more than once. So that is, you know, for those of you who aren't great at mental arithmetic, over two and a half million pounds to poll the country mm. on a representative basis. So what MRP does is it uses other data points to build a model. So you, in this in this case, they use census data and uh, British uh, election study data to complement a fifteen thousand strong poll, and that was a poll done mm. pre and post Chequers deal. Um, so, you know, obviously, if you were only f- surveying 15,000 people, then in each seat, you know, crudely, that works out at fewer than 25 people per seat. Um, but, but this isn't um, a, a poll. It's a model that builds an algorithm based on all these other data points. And it can be pretty uh, accurate, even down to a postcode level, because once you've got all the other data from the area, you can estimate the number of um, each type of voter in any Single area, and uh, like all models, it does have its limitations. But it was the model that was used to mm-hmm. accurately predict the snap general election uh, mm-hmm. results in 2017. So it was only those doing MRP analysis that called it correctly last year. Ooh. So it is very, very, very important as a model. So the, um, the, long the, been used in the states.
0: So the thing to take away is if you're having an argument about this in the pub, you need to say, yeah, but have you heard about MRP? and just leave it hanging in the air. The MRP predicted the... Stuff, actually, very accurately, actually, and MRP is saying people are flipping. If people are flipping, and you know, maybe Garvin has kind of raised caveats about that, but if people are flipping and changing their mind, it sort of slightly undermines this, this two tribes idea of Britain, the idea that we're now in two kind of ossified blocks that are never going to change, which seems to be the narrative we're continually given, particularly by broadsheet analysts we're now two nations and it's never going to change this is undermining to it isn't it
1: um well i mean i've long been saying that the electorate has already recalibrated along a different axis to that that the political parties still seem to be you know crawling around um you know they're on a much more of an open closed axis the party's still mm-hmm. trying to fight yesterday's war of left right, um which is boring and <laughs> causing uh far more headaches th- than we need um i mean i think what 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 i've really enjoyed about um collaborating with hope not hate on this research is that hope not hate are an organization that do incredible work in some of the hardest to reach communities around the country they've been doing it since 2004 they were set up uh, in reaction to the rise of the bnp getting lots of people elected um, and they they know how to go into these areas and talk to the very kinds of voter that was likely to vote leave or to not vote the you know exactly the kind of, of individual that has been left behind by hmm. successive governments failing them and until we're able to convince those people that it is not uh, people from a different country to blame for their ills but their own government and that they have the power themselves to, to have some agency over their situation by using their vote by using their democratic right to go and sit in their mp's surgery once a week and and talk to them about the issues that are uh, affecting them and uh, you know causing problems in their local areas then you know until until we can reach those people the remain camp and those of us that believe in a a better kind of politics aren't going to win so um i think that's what's really important about this kind of a relationship and it's it's um to pick up on something garvin said earlier it's not so much that we are necessarily going after um marginal tory labor seats but we're going for those areas where you've you've got a labor mp with a large leave constituency who needs to understand that actually a their Leave voters are changing and and are shifting to Remain, but that also Labour Leave voters are incredibly unlikely to ever not vote Labour.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. One last thing before we move on from this particular subject. Data like this raises two questions. Is it useful for the campaign to stop Brexit within a parliamentary context, or is it useful for the campaign for a people's vote? Now... Okay. Where do we th- do we think it has utility on either of those? there's two forks you can take. Do you think it has utility as information for that, Garvin? Your well, kind of. I
3: mean, polit- politicians will look at the national mood, and they will. The thing that would sh- cause a reasonable number of Tories to change their mind would be a continuous series of very large Remain leads in the opinion polls. Hmm. Then they will say, "Look, hmm. that was a mistake. Country's changed its mind. Let's give the whole thing up." But until that happens, there. Um, not willing to stand up to their grassroots. They're not willing to um, undermine the Prime Minister so much and they are genuinely scared of two things. They're scared of a Jeremy Corbyn victory Mm. because um, he Mm. represents everything that um, Tories don't stand for. One thing that unites the Conservative Party is economic policy and Mm. he's definitely on the other Mm. side and they're actually scared as well of the breakup of the country. Mm. So they, They want an outcome to Brexit in some way that doesn't give Nicola Sturgeon, a huge um, stick to be mm. written over the head with and declare independence.
1: I, I would have, I, mean, I agree with much of that, Gavin. The bit where I may raise an eyebrow is over national polls resonating with MPs. In my experience, they sometimes have an influence on the leadership of parties, but when it comes to individual MPs, they'll say, yes, 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 that, that might be what's happening at a national level, but in my constituency, mm. it's different. Mm. Oh, my personal vote will make sure that I'm OK. You know, we saw that a lot with the Liberal Democrats um, in the run up to the 2015 general election when mm. lots of uh, us in the social liberal wing of the party were saying, guys, guys, wake up. This is going to be a disaster. No, no, no. I'll hold my seat because I've got this but huge you, but personal you... vote. So, so but, but when you are able to do this level of data and get it down to the constituency level, then you get MPs starting to say, oh, OK, and, and taking a bit of notice and then the so it is helpful for lobbying purposes but then I think also and I agree with much of what was said that you know the public don't tend to be swayed by national poll figures it doesn't have huge impact on, on them w- what it does do is it, it gives permission for people that want to change their mind social norming is actually That's quite a powerful mm, yeah. concept and there are people around the country who probably are beginning to feel like oh maybe I, maybe I did do the wrong thing but mm. they're not going to come out and say that until it feels like there is a groundswell oh. of, of people doing it as well and so where we've had a huge um, success this week has been actually with the regional media. So we went big with the Observer on Sunday, but we've had regional coverage since then uh, with the regional cutdown figures. And, you know, that that's great for people in that area to say, oh, I'm not alone, you know, actually huge numbers of people yeah. in my area agree mm. with me, and, that, and that's great, and then they feel more confident to say mm. how they feel.
0: And there's a constitutional question here, which is that you're essentially saying that representative democracy needs to reassess itself over the direct democracy that we've been told for two years is the most pure and important form of democracy. It's basically making the case for the way we used to do things. Is anybody anybody going to pick up that stick and say, yes, representative democracy? No. It's a weird point. (laughs) Yeah?
2: (laughs) (laughs) We ran it for
3: years.
0: We ran the country that way for years.
2: Well, no, I mean, it's
3: just just, just a poll, isn't it? We've got the, the the problem parliament has all comes back to, all comes back to the, no party being able to win a majority with seats in Scotland anymore. The SNP have a lock on about 50 or 60 of them, which means none of the English parties can exactly. get a solid majority. Yeah, And until, until that changes, we're going to have these very weak parliamentary governments mm. where you'll get a majority of 10, a majority of 20, yeah. and our political culture isn't used to that. We're used to having um, strong, big parliamentary majorities, and we're used to parties forming broad coalitions. Mm. But now they have to scrabble for every single vote from everywhere. Which is which screws the Conservative Party because they can't keep both UKIP vote uh, yeah. on side and Lib Dem waivers on side and the other on the other end, which is why they can't win a majority in, uh, except with Cameron's freak result in, tw- in 2015. I think so the, the, state, thing, yeah. the, state, the status quo um, on the Tory side is for um, about 300 seats unless they can do something in Scotland or do something magic. The Score for Labour is probably about 270 seats. And again, they need to get Scotland back to mm. put them o- over the top. This is even with the Lib Dems mm. at historically very, very low numbers. Mm. And mm. this guarantees permanent division and instability in the British system. And per-
1: and, uh, well. Yeah, and I think the thing that really will provoke a constitutional crisis from within this data is that there is now a significant majority for Remain in Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, in Wales. Uh, and, That's and, and not in you. England.
1: So, you know, they're all now back and staying in the EU.
0: Okay, let's move on to the exciting world of Conservative Remainers. Garvin Welsh is our guest. Garvin, how does it feel to be a Remainer in the Tory party right now? Do you feel lonely and embattled? Well, embattled, but we're not lonely.
3: There are plenty of us. Right. You know, 40% of Conservative supporters voted Remain in, in, the, in the referendum. There are plenty of Remain backbench MPs. There are plenty of Remainers still in the Cabinet. Mm. And. What they have, what their position is, if they're in the cabinet, is that okay? Well, we've got to compromise. The electorate said this thing, so let's try and work out a, an arrangement that will work.
1: But
0: the party is the party has been wrested away from you, hasn't it? You're not making the running. The running is being made by a fringe of 80 MPs, uh, and um, you know we have a, a prime minister who's entirely driven by the concerns of re and the Daily Mail.
3: I think that was an accurate description of the Prime Minister before the last general election. I don't think it's an accurate description of the present Prime Minister after that general election. Really? She's now She's now holding the ring between two factions of the Conservative Party. If you look at the Chequers deal, that was not acceptable to... Um, and, it Jacob was, and it was, it was not then, acceptable to David Davis or Boris Johnson either. Yes, yeah, so but and, and it was destroyed. It was acceptable. Well, it was never. Go, it was never going to be accepted by the EU anyway. Right. But it was. It was a deal in the sense of a deal between the factions of the Conservative Party. Mm. And it couldn't get her problem is she can't actually get any deal through because the Remainers will block her from doing anything really hard Brexit. So mm. she's stuck. And you've got the. Uh, let's not even start talking about the DUP, which is a whole separate issue.
0: Yeah. What, what is your? I mean, I, I was about to ask you what your assessment of how the Remain Tories are performing, but you've kind of semi answered that really by sort of saying that they're, that, you know, they're blocking, they are they are performing the the other end of the blocking manoeuvre that's preventing anything at all from happening.
3: I would say they're probably, um, you know, they're they're behind on the scoreboard, but they're not feeling completely, um, you know, defeated and left
0: out because we spend a lot of time on this show kind of gnashing our teeth about what seems to be a relatively feeble performance, particularly from parliamentary. Remainers. They seem every every red line they put down is immediately scrubbed away. Grieve uh, is hoodwinked by the Prime Minister. It doesn't seem from our end of the table that much is being achieved. It very much seems like the running is still being made by the ERG with their unreachably high demands.
3: These, these are not temperamental radicals, these Tory Remainers. They're <laughs> temperamental <laughs> moderates. Yeah. Uh, they, joined, you know, they joined the Conservative Party because broadly they wanted to keep things as they were and they were head boys and girls at school and generally supported the established order. Whereas the people from the ERG joined the Conservative Party as radicals. They wanted to see huge change. They have had a... This has been their goal for the past uh, 40 years and it's almost there and they just want to get get it over the line. So there's an asymmetry of determination between Mm. between the two sides and an asymmetry of being willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. It's very hard for for, uh, someone like Dominic Grieve to think that Mm. his own Conservative Prime Minister might double-cross him, whereas the Jacob Rees-Mogg's and those other people think that, of course, the wets in the Cabinet have always double-crossed the true blue... Um, Maastricht rebels, and will continue to do so.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, you say that there's a lot of Remainers still uh, in... uh, you know, even in the Cabinet. Um, But what's it like going to Conservative Party gatherings now? I mean, I know what it's like to be made to feel incredibly unwelcome within a party that you've been active in for a long time. Um, But, you know, now, do you sort of feel like a bit of a spare organ at a wedding? I mean, uh, is it it hostile? (laughs) Do you sort of have to brace yourself before going into a... A thing, or is it because the the party faithful would tend to probably be more anti Europe than the average MP? Yeah,
3: but there I think there is a difference between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party when it comes to internal tribalism. Mm. I was Uh, talking
1: about the Lib Dems, but yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um,
3: (laughs) You know, because there's not a sense of. um, There's still a sense that, you know, everyone's Conservative, everyone wants to prevent Corbyn being Prime Minister, and that way he. In that way, he's a huge unifying, have a unity unifying yeah. figure. Mm. Um, so, and they've always, you know, and there's always been arguments, and it's always been accepted that people have different views in the Conservative Party to a greater extent than yeah. um, other parties. You know, Steve Baker's constituency um, is massively Remain in Wiccan. Um, and they, But, they, you know, they say, OK, well, we're, you know, remain mm. business people. We don't agree with anything you want to do, but we know you're MP. We know you're a Tory. We know you're sort of on the right side of the what you call the stale, the, stale, the, stale, the stale left-right divide. But mm. to them, that's still, mm. that still matters.
1: And we have a lot of discussion on this podcast about new parties emerging and new centrist parties and things like that. Would your preference be for the emergence of a new mm-hmm. pro-EU right-wing party or for the extremists in your party to go off to UKIP? Can, can, can the two ever really coexist? I mean, I, th- I think, year.
3: I think, I think, as Ian wrote recently, you know, what Britain needs is an actual liberal party, not another, <laughs> se- you know, c- c- centre-right. Let's let's go after the working class vote, kind of c- c- centre party. Mm. I mean, that they, they um, the people involved in all these new parties, um, seem to think that what they need to do is recreate the Blair-eyed coalition. Mm. That realise yeah. this is just different time first of all. Secondly, you only recreate the Blairite coalition having already built a base and then move out for that. And they don't seem to realise that if you're going to be a liberal pro-European party, your base has to be liberal pro-Europeans. I mean, the Lib Dems don't seem to even understand this. (laughs) And and once you've established consolidated support from them, and it's viable in first, past, the post, because these people are actually very concentrated, so you can concentrate um, and win tens of seats Mm -hmm. in... um, uh, suburbs and of major cities and affluent mm-hmm. places like mm-hmm. Oxford um, and Southwest and sou- Southwest is tricky because there's a euroskepticism there as well. Yeah,
1: but, but you can, can take, yeah, you but there are, there are places, places
3: yeah. where a, a liberal pro European party would pick up gains. And then if there were an election and they had say 50 seats, that would start changing, ch- mm. changing the conversation. Um, and then, you know, 20 years down the line, you would get a realignment of politics but the people setting up the new parties don't realise it's a ten twenty year job. Mm. It's not, um, you know, something that you can do by the next election at all. And until until they understand that, they're not going to come up with work, workable strategies.
0: Given that that's unlikely to happen, fascinating though it is to wargame it in our heads, and given the current the current trajectory of the Conservative Party, do you think that the Tory Party has a future when its core belief is not the old free markets, personal responsibility thing that it was? Before the referendum, its core belief now is Brexit. It is the Brexit Party. Well, what I'm, sort of future is that when Brexit is is being either uh, enacted or unraveling in the country?
3: I've been, um, you know, I joined the Tory Party in 1998 when people said it had no future. I was in the Tory Party in 2000 and, 2005 before Cameron came along. People said it's doomed. You know, they've lost again. They can't get past this juggernaut. You know, things things changed. The, the the cycle The cycle goes. Um, in and out, the Earth keeps spinning on its axis, as um,
2: uh, Tricky used to say. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Martin Fry, that'll yeah. do. I, yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> How about the the business community? It does seem that that seems fundamentally quite different. You sort of alluded earlier this, there was this idea among many sort of businessmen of. Well, you know, fine, but the, you know, ultimately, we know the stuff on this side. I mean, the new message, obviously, from Boris was was fuck business. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and even if even if we would see a pullback at the last minute, we would certainly, you know, it's quite hard to make the case that the Conservatives have have that kind of intimate, intuitive understanding of what business needs now. Do you think that would take time to repair?
3: I think that will take a lot of time to repair, and I think this is a huge opportunity for the Lib Dems. Hmm. Hmm. They should be able to um, create, you know, something that will be attractive to. Um, urban pro-business people or people who work in the private sector, people who are generally liberal-minded and say, look, we're the party of business. You can't trust Corbyn because he's a communist. You can't trust the Tories (laughs) because they're nationalists. (laughs) Um, The trouble the Lib Dems have for that is getting getting over the SDP element in their own party who is not massively comfortable with that kind of messaging.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I want to pull you back to this question, though, of what is the Tory party for now? Because we knew what it was for before the kind of extinction event of the referendum which blew everything over and 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 people had to rapidly reconstruct the identity of their parties what is the tory party for now in the world where brexit and the consequences of brexit have kind of knocked out the key things holding the party up
3: you know the, the tory party in a way is the king's party so the the chunk of the chunk of tory MPs in the middle and a lot of tory supporters will support the powers that be, whoever they are, because of the powers that be. So the challenge for a, a future Tory leader, and we might be looking at someone like Ruth Davidson, Sajid Javid, um, if, as I think is likely, Brexit's going to be a complete fucking mess, mm-hmm. is to basically say, well, that wasn't, that wasn't um, us who did that. That was crazy people like Dick, Reese, Morgan, Boris. What you want is nice, moderate, sensible people like, like us um, who are also not like Corbyn, who can then get the show back on the road and that would be that that would be how they would be but, presenting themselves
0: but that's a that's a retail political proposition what is the philosophical core of what the Tory party is offering in this apocalyptic landscape. The
3: the Tory party is all about retail political propositions.
1: (laughs) 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 The philosophical
3: core core is infinitely malleable and flexible. Can can I just ask
1: you one (laughs) quick question about the machinations of the Tory party? Because most of us on this podcast don't really understand the key players that well. We know we're not close to them. We don't understand how they work. So in the event that MPs do vote down Mm. the meaningful vote in the autumn... Do you think Theresa May would resign in that instant? Do you think she wouldn't? Uh, if she does, who do you see as emerging as the likely victor well, it's in, I, in I a mean, short
3: term? I, I may you. have got all the, the parliamentary procedure confused, but I think it's the case that um, it, as it is going to be one of these um, in neutral terms type resolutions, um, it, it can just continue. She would just carry on. She would just yeah. carry on. Yeah. Um, the, the issue is more political, that if if there is no no Brexit deal at some point and the financial markets then finally realise that no deal is a serious possibility with all the consequences that entails, whether that would create a crisis of such proportions that she couldn't continue. Mm. Um, and also whether if there is actually no deal rather than just a Canada-style deal with something, some clever arrangement organised for Northern Ireland, um, whether um, that would cause um moderatory to say, well, no, we're out. We're out of this. We can't yeah. support a government that would bring about such just economic mm-hmm. destruction to the country, and they have they have said that on the record and off the record. There are significant numbers of people who say that that is their red line, and mm-hmm. uh, No Deal would be where they would they would have enough, and they would then um, vote against the government. Whether, of course, they would actually follow through on that is another matter. If the if the alternative then is Jeremy Corbyn government. And your argument is we're doing this because we want to avoid economic destruction. Your argument doesn't isn't
0: that strong mm. given that the the strong bias against brexit, the electoral bias is among young people, yeah, like clearly by huge margin um, What would you say to like an eighteen year old you now, what reasons would you give? That they need to vote conservative and set on the path of being a conservative in the future, considering that the party is now enthusiastically enabling a thing you're dead set against, and that is going to, <laughs> going to you know constrict your future. What would the arguments be? Here's why you need to vote Tory. My arguments, I mean,
3: I wrote this for Con Home a couple of weeks ago. My argument is the Tory party needs to detoxify itself again. And it needs to find an entirely new agenda to appeal to these people while it's losing very, losing very, very quickly. The agenda I picked was feminism. Mm -hmm. We have um, a a huge change in attitudes to gender questions among younger people. The Tory party is completely um, behind on this. Um, It's been caught flat-footed by Me Too. It's been caught flat-footed by things like the Women's March. And there are plenty of Tory things you can do, not least around things like childcare policy that will get more women into the workforce. We have a very small gender pay gap before childbearing age and a huge one after it. Why? Because childcare costs are so so expensive. And these are things that naturally lend themselves to Tory-type economic policy solutions. Uh, And they would be the basis for a revival post-Brexit
0: under someone like... um, Ruth Davidson or Sajid Javid. I was, I was about to say, can you get there from here? But you've just suggested Ruth Davidson and Sajid Javid as, as potential uh, <laughs> bridges to that, to that exciting world. Um, just before we move on, um, I wanted to ask you, stepping outside of party politics into foreign affairs, mm-hmm. you're the key specialist subject. I mean, not everybody on the podcast agrees with me, but I'm, I've definitely seen Brexit, Trump, election interference and information pollution as all the kind of culminations of 30 years of Russian foreign policy. You know, they're scattering the Western alliance, doing their best to depower and uh, you know place cracks, whatever cracks they can open, open up in NATO, so doubt amongst the democracies. Am I being paranoid? I think you're exaggerating.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, they've, just, they've just got very, very lucky because um, they never thought they'd get Trump in. They just thought they were going to cause a bit of trouble. Mm. They um, found themselves in alliance with a group of uh, demagogues in Western countries and the United States, in Britain, in um, France, in Sweden, uh, Poland, Hungary, um, who are also committed to sowing chaos and disrupting the international order. And so it's great for Russia. Um, What's odd about Britain is a lot of these demagogues are actually very anti-Russian. We're not seeing that in the States. We're seeing it here. They're combining policies that work in the Russian interest with other policies that work against Mm. the Russian interest. You know, tough sanctions. um, There are calls for rearmament. All these things will not help Russia in the slightest. Hmm.
0: Mm. Well, given that the Russians have, like the Brexiters, they the one thing they didn't think they'd win, what should we be doing now, of, apart from the obvious of cancelling Brexit immediately today, what should we be doing to address this this situation where Russia kind of advanced we, a lot we, further? we Britain or we the West? Well, we in Britain primarily.
3: Uh, Britain needs to commit itself to uh, independent European defence structures. We can't necessarily rely on the United States. I mean, not not just because of Trump, but also because of um, the internal conflict Trumpism will provoke and America's natural tendency to have to take care of the Pacific as well. Hmm. Um, Europe as a continent is more than big enough to do this. Um, Europe's GDP is this, basically the same size as America's. Um, even if we spent, actually all spent 2.5% of GDP, that would be enough hmm. um, to def- defend Europe and also to cope with um, instability in North Africa. Um, it needs to... You, Britain needs to sign up to um, efforts to consolidate European defence markets. Very difficult to do that o- outside of European Union institutions. Um, but there are ways in which cooperation can happen. Um, they need to train together, They need to develop more planning capability. They stopped me to worrying about a European army because um, with Trump... And the White House, the European Army, is a rather good idea. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean,
1: I remember when it was the Tories that used to attack the Labour left for being the useful idiots of the USSR, but it's pretty hard not to conclude now that it's the extremists that are the useful idiots for yeah.
0: Russia. Um,
2: Everyone's go- quite useful for Russia at the moment,
0: <laughs> I find. <you> know, <laughs> yeah. it's extraordinary. Well, you sort of like anticipated my follow-up question, though, which is how do we get there from here? I mean, we're heading in precisely the opposite direction of a more coordinated, more uh, interdependent mm-hmm. Europe aren't we? And we're doing we quite in Britain are heading
3: away yeah. from that. Mm. Uh, Europe itself is starting to get its act together, particularly on defence and security. We've seen PESCO, which basically everyone's in. We've seen commitments to increase in defence uh, spending. You see a new European uh, defence fund of 500 billion euros for procurement and research and development. Steps are starting to be taken uh, in that area. Britain, on the other hand, may well be going the other way, not least because a Corbyn government um, poses serious questions about um, Britain's commitment to NATO. Uh, would you count on Corbyn um, responding if um, yeah. Putin was doing something in Estonia, for example?
0: Well, I think you wrote something to those effects on Conservative Home, didn't you? Saying that I think the headline was something along the lines of Corbyn would absolutely sacrifice to Eastern Europe. Probably. I'm paraphrasing like there, possibly. Yeah. Okay, we're going to move on because Ian doesn't <laughs> get a treat too often, but it's the school holidays, so we're going to let him off the leash with these five things you need to know about the WTO, <laughs> Ian. Nothing is worse for my reputation than the stuff you say to me on this podcast.
2: (laughs) This this is stuff that people need to know.
0: It's useful. (laughs) It's need to know. You're like the little paperclip that pops up in the corner on a Microsoft Word document. (laughs) (laughs) You look like you're about to have a conversation about the WTO. (laughs) Would you like some help with that? (laughs) Little paperclip Ian in the the corner. Same haircut as well. Yeah. Before you get into your five gems of info, for people having arguments in pubs, and this is the stupidest question ever, what exactly is the WTO? Oh, it pretty much does a,
2: you know, what it says on the tin, which is a, an organization which is really there to try and lower tariffs around the world and in the latter half to come up with some kind of sort of uniform regulatory structure for how people do trade. So that, the idea of it is that it's there to facilitate world trade. World trade has become quite unfashionable, to be honest. Like for, and you know, this precedes the kind of rise of populism that we see right now. Populism. Popularism is something <laughs> that happened on top of the pops ages ago. Um, it, it precedes that. I mean, we haven't had a successful sort of world trade round for decades. And that's really because everything got a bit caught up really, we were with agriculture and a few other bits and bobs. But ultimately, it's there as a sort of echo of a time when we thought the world would start dealing with this stuff together rather than the modern way, the, the now fashionable way, which is what we did in Victorian times, which is bilaterally, basically, just having two parties.
0: Yeah. OK, let's have your five things
2: we need to know about the WCO. Number one. I'll try and make this incredibly quick. The first thing is it's, it's basically it's soft law. So it's not like when we talk about the EU, we say something's against the law in the EU and it goes to the European Court of Justice and it's done and it's firm and it's black and white and it's relatively quick unlike that we there's stuff there maybe it is against the law maybe it isn't against the law you know someone's going to have to launch a complaint Then there's a sort of three or four stage quite mercurial smoky room sort of process where that state complains to others a panel is formed they have a chat about whether it's really taking place then then send it off at the very end suggest some stuff to the appellate court and then it's not as if anyone goes to jail it's not as if anyone's really found in any kind of strict terms it's really a series of sort of of tariffs applied on other parts of their economy to make up for what they have done to you. So where would that leave Britain falling back on a WTO
0: thing? It would be a small player...
2: So the first... Yeah, okay. so here's the thing. So it doesn't correspond... It's not particularly good news either for Leave or Remain. I mean, Leavers have their own myths about... I mean, God, Jesus Christ, they could fill a book with their myths about Mm. the WTO. But for instance, you had Jacob Rees-Mogg who went on the Daily Politics uh, not very long ago and started talking about... Well, he, well, it's not entirely clear what he was talking about. He was <laughs> on about the fact that, you know, for 10 years we'd have the right under WTO law to trade on certain terms. As best as we can understand, he's referring to paragraph 5 of Article 24 of the General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade. That's my favourite one. That is, I know. it's, it's always, <laughs> And it's they've, always they've got Roman obscure. numerals as well,
3: so it's much more impressive when you write them <laughs> <Fantastic>. down. <laughs>
2: it's true. Paragraph V. Um, it's, <laughs> the, it's the hipster choice of, of yeah. the day. Um, Probably that was the one that he was referring to. But even if, and of course, Remainers have this as well. So Com- Remainers are constantly saying you can't do that it's against WTO law. The truth is, you can go ahead and do a thing and then this slow legal process will take place in the background to decide it. So when it comes to tariff rate quotas, which you'll be excited to hear, I will mention it in a little bit. All right. You can say, fine, it's against the law, but you can trade on those quotas. You can just put them down and trade on them while a series of states launch litigation against you. And that would be doable in a way that it frankly wouldn't be in the
0: EU. So number one, it's soft law, which means it will go through a lengthy, lengthy process if and when it's challenged and you're setting yourself up for an eternity of legal
2: Yeah, and no one's going to go to jail and what's really going to happen is that there's going to be some kind of revenge tariff on another part of your economy so you know for the, for the French you might put it on wine when it's actually a dispute that's to do with beef or so it's, it's a very kind of mercurial strange process it takes a long time and as we'll see that there's a, there is a chance that it will never happen at all
0: okay so number one it's soft law and it's messy law number two
2: number two um, is it's part of um, a sort of global standards web which people never ever ever talk about right. and this is a huge host of bodies including sort of the international standards organization including uh the un economic commission for europe um the codex elementarius there's, there's an awful lot of bodies that basically say this is how we think you should be making stuff at the time being so if you I'm uh, not entirely sure on all these options but for instance if you take usb the reason that it all came down to one sort of mechanism of doing it if you say that we think don't think you should be using these kind of substances in these kind of products an awful lot of the time that is global standards rather than regulations Most of the laws that the EU passes is not actually EU-originated law. It is actually taking the standards from these global bodies and putting a stamp on them, including, by the way... The fucking bendy bananas. The
0: fucking bendy bananas. The fucking
2: bendy bananas come from the Codex. They don't come from the EU. So if you really want to get rid of that, you actually have to start leaving all sorts of other international organisations.
0: I thought the Codex Elementaris was something from like Magneto's
1: <laughs> era <laughs> of
0: the X Men. But so, effect- effectively, in the future, we could be instead of people going, "The bloody year is depowered my Hoover," the it codex. will be the bloody co- the Codex. Bloody, <laughs> the, the bloody Codex. The, co- the Codex. Codex
1: Alex, it. The, the
0: codex it. Absolutely. Well, the Codex. We yeah. It it. It happened. <laughs> what, did, what did Roz say last week? The minute Brexit was given a name, it made yeah. it more powerful. You yeah. just invented Codexia. I hope you're pleased Oops. with yourself. <laughs> also, Sounds good. Codexia <laughs> Ele- elementaris does sound very Illuminati, doesn't it? There's lots of pyramids. And this this and stuff that is, a,
2: is a little bit odd. And by the way, I would say that that's quite a healthy thing in the, the EU. It, it's not just that it's rubber stamping stuff. That's not a fair thing to do. It debates it. And it provides a layer, it's, not, it's an insufficient layer, but a layer of democratic scrutiny of stuff that otherwise goes on in the place that people don't, can't even imagine the rooms that are taking place in, let alone
0: being party to the debate itself. So to paraphrase it for the heart of thinking, like me, if you think that leaving the EU and going on to WTO means you're going to get all these messy standards are going to, be, they're going to disappear, they're not because the codex is going to get you.
2: It will. In fact, again, the agreement on technical barriers to trade, it's Article 2.4, says that you are supposed to take on the standards that are generally agreed at that level. So we are party to international law that does exactly the same things to sovereignty and materially in a softer way than what the Brexiters complained about the EU doing. So essentially, if
0: we go into WTO law, the idea that you're going to get your 3 million watt house burning light bulbs back again it's not going to happen yeah. and your Rolls-Royce Hoover exactly. is not coming your back your
2: massively loud lawnmower is will still be back.
0: beyond your reach absolutely okay so point three give us point three from you I'm
2: enjoying this this is great I, that's strange and that's mostly because I think you've got Stockholm Syndrome from hanging so yeah. in the studio with me for years on end. so um, most favoured nation most favoured nation is an interesting thing to talk about it's a WTO rule it sounds very good it actually isn't it's a lock and it works in two different ways the first way at the WTO it works that you're not allowed to discriminate on your tariffs now this is a problem when we leave the EU because if the EU were to say outside of a trade deal that they're going to have zero tariffs on us that means they have to have zero tariffs Mm -hmm. with everyone and they're not going to fucking do that And if we were to say, outside of a trade deal with the EU, we're going to have zero tariffs with them, it means we have to have it to everyone else, and then we get flooded with cheap goods from all over the place. might be good for some consumers. would certainly be very, very fucking bad for agricultural and some manufacturing producers here. There's a second part to most favoured nation, which is inside of a free trade agreement. And this is a clause that is in the EU's agreements, for instance, even with Norway, certainly with Canada, it will be there with Japan, which is to say, if you come up with a deal with someone else that is better than this one, you have to come back to this one and update it. Right. So when we start saying, oh, "Well, we want a deal with the EU," it's going to start saying, "Well, we need some financial services, a bunch of stuff." That you, there's nothing like that in Canada in CETA. Then they have to go back to those. So it's a double lock. A really interesting thing that Brexit is constantly talk about most favoured nation because I think it sounds great. It sounds like you're the best buddy and say Garvin is literally yawning in my face. Right <laughs> now. I'm just going to point that out. But actually, it goes exactly the other way around, and it's actually quite quite a
0: restrictive uh, element. So basically, whatever terms you offer to the EU, you also have to offer, to, offer it to like. Kiribati and the Pitcairn Islands and exactly. everywhere else. Exactly, in a
2: deal. And outside of a deal, what you offer to one, you must offer to all. Okay, all right. Number four. Uh, number four. The main thing that we are doing at the WTO right now, or should be doing, and doesn't seem that we are, is something called tariff rate quotas, which is one of those things you get to say and everyone instantly wants to jump out the fucking window. problem with tariff rate <laughs> quotas is that you can't just copy what the EU have got. Say so the EU have got 10% over here. We would naturally want to say with our tariffs, okay, we'll just we'll copy whatever is going on in the EU and then we'll figure it out later. Tariff rate quotas are quantitative, so that they're based on the amount of goods that come in and the slice of them that goes to the UK. Basically, when you say, let's say there's like 30,000 tonnes of poultry coming in from uh, Thailand, it's, it's about that much, or in fact, I even have the figures here for the amount of lamb that comes from New Zealand and the amount is uh, 283,825 tonnes come in duty-free the rest are above that level. That's a whole lot of kebabs. So above that level it changes. So then you have to figure out if you're going to separate your tariff rate quotas from the EU and put them in front of the WTO, well, what's our slice of that? That's really fucking hard, because actually the slices move up and down and up and down. Our tactic has been to take the last three years, take the average and put that down. But that really does very little to tell you how trade actually operates. Now, that was warned about. I mean, someone, you know, too much self-confidence, has a massive nose, wrote this in a book two years ago, and no one one seemed to pay any attention to it. Nevertheless, now when they put these things down... All the countries, as one said, no, you're a fucking rocker, mate. There's absolutely no way you can do this. Because you take um, New Zealand, New Zealand meat, meat and lamb body was one of the most vociferously mm-hmm. opposed to this. The main thing is saying markets are dynamic. So we don't know. We want this stuff to be able to move around as much as possible. If you just put in a block wall between the EU and the UK, yeah. that doesn't match up to the deal that you originally offered us. Oh. So for you to just come down and go, oh, we're going to have the same tariff rate quotas and separate them as so, it's completely mm-hmm. unacceptable. And almost all countries who export to us said that, including our closest allies. You know, we're talking like Australia, the yeah. US, New Zealand. We're just like, no, 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 this does not fucking work. Again, you can trade on it in the time being, but you are about to launch a massive wave of litigation against you by pretty much all of your export partners, just as you go out into the world to try and sign trade deals. And
1: that- that's with 160 other organ- uh, countries rather than just the EU27. Yeah, exactly, that at the moment. exactly. Yeah. I've
0: got to admit, that number four was the one I really still don't understand. I mean, to actually read your book. Well, it's oh, terrible, terrible. Is it, the
1: it, so, uh, way comments. I understand it, Andrew, <laughs> is that it's um, so within, and Ian can correct me if I am wrong, but within the EU, what, what you have to do when you go into WTO is to unpick the UK's portion of EU trade with the rest mm-hmm. of the WTO yes, on exactly. certain goods, right? And so, just just unpicking that alone, you know, what is Britain's portion of poultry? Trade with g- globally, but unpicked from the EU, and then once you do that, you then have to negotiate with 160 other countries around whether that is the the trade amount on that good that you're allowed or, exactly or not right. allowed. Right? So okay. unpicking that is almost impossible. So it's you the see,
2: portion from a bunch of. No, she's done it much better than Naomi could do it. Naomi yeah. <laughs> no, all, right, all right, all right. So it's the portion from each country that's what to you, and not only that, but the amount that then goes from the EU to you and vice versa. Your intra trade matters as much as anything else coming in to you. Just, I'm just glad we've got some Barry Chuckle on the
0: show there with the EU to you there. Uh, finally. I'm not fifth. dead one. <laughs> <laughs> to EU, to me, to you. Come on, don't concentrate.
2: Fifth one. Fifth thing we need to know about uh, the The WTO. last one is that the WTO is about to get fucked anyway. Um, and the reason is, when you look at the kind of things that we've just been talking about, is this is why Donald Trump does not like the WTO and has been attacking it savagely mm. throughout the time he was running for president. And now that he is president, because it is an international institution. It has fairly rudimentary, but, you know, often quite effective democratic mechanisms, not as good as the EU, but worth noting and and quite good stuff. The only reason the Brexiters say nice things about it is because it is the supposed safety net that they think we can fall on. But actually, right wing populists hate the WTO just like they hate the UN. Now, Barack Obama, when he left the White House, left a pretty juicy legal battle for his uh, successor to take to challenge China. China has been, frankly, pretty disgraceful. The WTO uh, not, you know, has, has, should not be allowed the degree of penetration into other markets it demands, given what it does in its own domestic market. Nevertheless, Trump chose not to take that case and instead proceeded to start using technical excuses to starve the appellate court, which ultimately comes up with the sanctions, the WTO, of judges. Now, that hasn't had an effect yet. But it will come down the line in the next two years or so. And what it'll essentially do is starve the lifeblood of the WTO. It will be unable to enact any of the disciplinary mechanisms or decisions that it comes to. So ultimately, the WTO is getting fucked as hard as the EU is getting fucked, just like all international institutions, including NATO, including the UN, are being subject to the sustained aggressive attack by right-wing
0: populism. So Why are, we, why are right-wing populists telling us to fall back on it then, if it's knackered?
2: Because, I mean, I I would very much doubt that most of those Brexiters are aware of what's going on with Trump and the appellate court at the WTO. They don't give a shit about the WTO and they would happily attack it later on. Mm. What it is, is an attempt for them. It's a way for them to pretend that everything is under control, that everything is rules based, that everything is normal under a no deal scenario. When in actual fact, it isn't. That is a very, very long drop you have taken to fall to that level from having the kind of
0: relationship that we have right now with the EU. I suspect we'll be returning to this subject over and over and over I again. I enjoyed the shit out I of it. I actually that. enjoyed that. That was as well. really quite fun. That for was, me. Quite, <laughs> you, you, you're, you're glowing. You'd say it's almost fire. But it's almost the end of the show. We're going to try something quick. Uh, a few of your emails. We really need a jingle for this, don't we? Your emails. This is listener David Mungle. But in- your emails. Hey? But your emails. <laughs> but your emails. <laughs> but your emails. Yes, exactly. This is- Welcome to a new segment we call But Your Emails. This is listener David Mungle, who's in Singapore. And he originally got in touch to tell us to fix our sound levels, Ian. Anyway, David says, it drives me crazy when Brexiters casually compare UK post-Brexit to Singapore. You could not get a more far-fetched comparison. As usual, they focus on the one side of something they like, low-tax, strict immigration, and ignore the other stuff that they would never dream of doing in Britain, like high-quality public housing, a seat at the top table for the trade unions, the decades of conscious nation-building, the huge rigour and forward planning that goes into everything the government does. And they seem to forget Lee Kuan Yew was a Labour Party supporter, not to mention that Singapore thinks we're mad for leaving the EU, and they're consciously trying to create an EU light in ASEAN. While the Brexit mob might talk about Singapore as a model, they have no idea of how to get there. What Singapore had in Lee Kuan Yew and what the UK utterly lacks now is high quality leadership, a plan and determination. Fair point, I think. Yeah, it is. Very well said.
1: And Phil Jollins in Germany says, I must take issue with your summary dismissal of ID schemes probably pointed at me and Stella there. Um, As good Europeans, you will know the phrase sans-papier, which in France is synonymous with illegal immigrants. The fact is that, in particular in the Windrush generation, that there are sans-papiers, literally without papers, who are 100% legal residents of Britain, indeed British citizens. I find that gobsmacking. It seems to me that the Home Office just doesn't have the tools that it would need to work as a modern administration. The most basic tool would be some form of ID number. This does not have to be an ID card. For example, Americans do not have to carry ID, but they do have a social security number which has morphed into a universal personal ID number. The knee-jerk association of an ID scheme with ID cards and implicitly with the requirement to carry them at all times is not helpful. An ID scheme would have helped the Windrush generation if all legal systems were registered with the authorities. A system where sans Papier might, in fact, be British citizens is just bonkers.
0: And that was But Your Emails. If you want to have your say on what we talk about on the show, then please do email us at info at Keep them concise, mark them for the podcast, and we'll read out the best ones. Before we go, we're going to put something in the Brexit time capsule, our archive of things we're going to miss if we leave the EU, and the things we might need if we're out on our own. Garvin, you're the guest this week. You get to choose something for the time capsule. What's going in? I'm going to put in a written constitution. A because, written constitution?
3: Because we kind of had one where, during, the, during, during the 40 mem- years of EU membership. Basically, there were things Parliament couldn't just do on a whim. Hmm. And we need something to stop random um, parliamentary majorities doing... Um, that will end up being bad in the long term. That's why countries have constitutions. It's to stop people being daft when they got a parliamentary majority. And we won't have this anymore um, after we leave the EU.
0: That sounds like a very good thing to put inside the uh, the, the time capsule. Finally, as ever, we're gonna end the show with a clip of a non English EU language. Of course we want yours as well. If you can speak one of the languages languages from the community, then record an appropriate line or two on your phone and email it to info at romaniacs.com. Keep them moderately clean and moderately non libelous and we'll use the best ones. This is listener Michael Power with a bit of Irish. And cliste in NMD the Holy. It means, to Theresa May and the Conservative Party, what are you doing? A little bit of cleverness, please, in the name of God. Or at least that's what Michael says it means. It could be anything at all. <laughs> and that's the end of the show. Many thanks to our special guest, Garvin Walsh. Has this show raised your spirits at all? Oh, fantastically. Good. It is a little, it's like a cross between uh, question time and a Turkish hammam. Where you kind of lose most of your the, the, the liquid in your body. Please do come on again. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks, to, as ever, to Naomi and Ian. We're going to see you soon. Now, listeners, remove your headphone jack from your phone and start blasting our theme tune Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop out all over the bus or the train while we salute some of our lovely Patreon backers.
2: Righty-ho, hello, thumbs up from me to Jessica Smith, Nick Simpson, Paul McKay, John Lansdale and Elizabeth Foote.
1: Thanks from me for all your support to Lee Burgess, Alex Dennis, Philip Brody, Claire Smart and Frank. Just Frank.
0: And finally, hello from me to Catherine Martineau, Steve Bellamy, Robert Young, Tarantella with an 11 in their name, which is very spooky, some sort of internet hacker, possibly, and Tabitha Sunberg. We love you all. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Romaniacs was produced and presented by me, Andrew Harrison, with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Studio production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.